I, I do genuinely feel a bit of a fraud standing here because knowledge exchange is something which I sort of stumbled across um, really because I've been doing a lot of work with the creative industries and the more, the more I work with the creative industries the more I realise that what's happening in the areas that I work in, in digital media and film and television uh, and software and video games, most of all, are now spilling over into almost every kind of activity. And the, and the, the, the richness of crossovers that are going on between disciplines and cultures is really quite fascinating. And so a lot of my, uh, my work has been at a very kind of practical rather than theoretical view of knowledge exchange. And I've sort of come across this great academic discourse of knowledge exchange as a sort of novice and found it very interesting. So I, I called my, my talk Making Knowledge Exchange Work because at Creative, uh, in Creative England, a lot of the emphasis of what we're doing is getting conversations going between groups of people who wouldn't normally talk to each other. But just before I start, I can't resist picking up something from that last session. Uh, I don't know, do any of you know what a Hemingway challenge is? Uh, Ernest Hemingway, the writer, um, who was fond of a drink, as you may know, was apparently very drunk in a bar one night, and they, with some friends, they got into a competition about storytelling. What was the shortest story that you could tell? And Hemingway won with a six-word story. And the story was, for sale, children's shoes never worn. He said, you hear that story, it's six words long, but it makes you want to find out more about the child and about the shoes. Uh, and it's something that uh, I do quite a lot. I do some, some uh, training on communications with people working in the arts, and we very often play this game. Can you describe what you're doing in six words? That is really, really tough. It's even tougher than 10 seconds. Uh, and I'll come back to talk about that because it's, it's a, a format that we've used in some of the projects that I've been involved in over the last few years. So uh, I do want to talk about some of the practical lessons that we've learned, particularly in this organization, Creative England. Um, but before that, I wanted to just start with a few sort of personal thoughts about knowledge exchange. And it has, after all, been around for a very long time. And I thought the Tower of Babel is quite a good place to start because... Uh, this is an example of not very successful knowledge exchange. Uh, a lot of people getting together, uh, thinking that they were doing something absolutely wonderful and aspirational, but actually all talking a different language, their project a complete failure, and the whole story becoming a byword for arrogance, hubris, folly, chaos. So knowledge exchange does not always work. And I just thought it's quite good to kind of start by reminding ourselves of that fact. Uh, and talking about things that don't work, I also ought to say my poor Mac Airbook had a kind of um, nervous collapse this morning. And I've been trying to load pictures on. Uh, and I got kind of five minutes in. And then it has just completely stopped working. So enjoy the pictures while they last, because there aren't very many of them. So this is, this is not a, a Tower of Babel, but... For some people, it's a staircase of Babel. This, uh, this is a picture I took on a rather ancient iPhone in Hong Kong last December. And it's uh, during the Occupy protest movement in Hong Kong. If you, that, what you can't see, that staircase is completely lined with post-its. Hundreds of thousands of post-it notes. Uh, and it struck me, uh, being there and listening to the debates and reading what was on those notes, there were messages written in every language you can imagine. 
uh, full of wisdom and comment and observation, some of them full of absolute nonsense and vanity. And uh, it struck me that so far as the Chinese government was concerned, this was another Tower of Babel. It was, uh, in their words, an error. Uh, as good Marxists, they saw what was being done in Hong Kong not as something that was bad, but as an error. They had a completely uh, in all-encompassing, indivisible view of the world uh, as good old-fashioned Marxists, and what was going on in Hong Kong simply didn't make sense to them. On the other side, all the protesters, for whom that was not a staircase of Babel at all, but an expression of another all-encompassing view of the world in which they believe passionately, and that is about the values of free speech, the values of democracy, the values of an open society. And I thought, listening to the very intelligent and intense debates going on in Hong Kong, it's two completely different worldviews, and there is no communication going on between them. And that also made me think um, that for most of our era in Europe, there has been one all-encompassing view of the world for a thousand years at least, uh, and it was all summed up and codified uh, in a single book, or not a book, but the book, the Bible. Uh, the Bible was the, the absolutely indivisible, all-encompassing explanation of history, of values, of the purpose of life, of everything. Uh, and it was only in the Renaissance and in the Enlightenment when that indivisible view of the world began to fracture into different understandings of the relationship between the personal and the social, between the natural sciences and the moral sciences, between the spiritual and the temporal and so on. And as that process accelerated and as knowledge and information fractured more and more, it became more and more difficult for people to communicate with each other. And, uh, but just at that moment, at the moment of the Enlightenment, something I think very interesting took place. I mean, all kinds of interesting things took place. But this is a picture of Samuel uh, Taylor Coleridge, the romantic poet. And here is his friend Edmund <laughs> Davy, a famous chemist. Uh, at the beginning of the Enlightenment, the late 18th century, uh, the two of them set up a very, very friendly and purposeful correspondence. Uh, in a word, they were both taking drugs, but for different reasons. Coleridge was consuming opium to see what it would do to his consciousness as a poet. Davy was ingesting nitrous oxide and other gases to see what effect it would have on his consciousness. And the two of them began to exchange notes. Uh, and the thing that I think is so interesting in reading about that is here you have a poet and a chemist pursuing their own interests in completely different fields, but the quality of the relationship was one of absolute parity of esteem. They respected what each other were doing. Uh, maybe that's because they were both stoned on the various drugs they were ingesting, <laughs> but whatever, they had a very, very purposeful communication. And Davy actually wrote up some of his uh, notes of his experiments as lyrical ballads. And in, in poetry form and sent them to, to, uh, to Coleridge. And I thought that's, an, that's just catching that moment when the way in which people saw knowledge, different kinds of knowledge, different kinds of understanding, it was still possible for these very, very different fields to communicate with each other. And it's something which in the subsequent 150 years we've very substantially lost until now when suddenly it feels like everything is going into reverse and we are now in this incredible sort of uh, 
open plan office of the mind where everything has to have parity of esteem and all knowledge is equal uh, and we all have to share and all love each other and it's all fine. But, you know, but is it? And that's really what I want to, to talk about a little bit. Um, uh, oh, I just wanted to, as, as, as an expression of that, I mean, this is kind of idle little picture. So there's God uh, containing all that was to be known of the entire world in a book. This is Blake's great painting of God with the Bible as the encompassing volume in which all knowledge of all different kinds could be contained. But so just in this point about the, 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 the bifurcation and the division of knowledge, this is a, a picture of offices in the 1950s when uh, that seemed like quite a normal way to run an office in which you have everybody entirely separate, working in their own little silos, not communicating with each other, and the whole point of the divisions is that it stops people talking with each other and they focus on what they should be doing. And this seems to me, this is much more the kind of paradigm of the way we see work now, where there are no divisions, people are all working together. And of course the extraordinary thing is, you look at that picture, you actually have no idea whether these people are engaged in some very serious research project, or looking at a movie, or booking their holidays, or (laughs) what they're doing, but they're all working together and they're all sharing the experience Um, and we've got to a point where and obviously the premise of knowledge exchange is that we think that is a good thing that sharing this knowledge and being getting away from the divisions of the last 150 years post enlightenment if you like is a good place to be Uh, there was um, a, a great lecture given in Edinburgh two or three years ago by Eric Schmidt the chairman of Google who, uh, to assemble television executives, in which he berated uh, the British establishment and the British education system for failing to, to mend the division between arts, science, and technology. Uh, and he said, the time when Britain was at its greatest was the time when the men who built bridges also wrote poetry. Uh, this went down to the complete confusion of most of the TV executives in the room who were very puzzled as to what he was talking about. But he obviously felt that these two things go together. And if you think of uh, uh, Steve Jobs at Apple, uh, his great uh, answer when asked why was Apple the most successful company in the world, he said, because I don't hire computer geeks, I hire artists, poets and musicians who are fascinated by technology. So that the the need for us to be sharing is something which we've swallowed wholesale. It's seen to be a good thing and it's often seen to be an absolutely inevitable thing. The, uh, the United Nations every three years produces a report on the global creative economy. Uh, the most recent one was in 2013. It's an absolutely fascinating document and it includes case studies of successful projects Uh, around creativity and creative industries in cities all around the world. And they're nearly all from cities uh, in in the developing world, if you like, in the south. It's Rio, Sao Paulo, Jakarta, Lagos, cities like that. And one of the strongest elements that comes out in that report is it is no longer possible to disentangle culture from economic activity. That's one of the things that they say. So this idea that everything is converging and we need to be thinking about convergence in a much more radical way than we have in the past... Uh, seems to me uh, at the core of it. And 
but thinking about that, what's the, are there downsides to this desire that we have to kind of share and to talk about convergence? And I came across this in a, a paper produced by the National Council for Guidance in Education, an organization I hadn't heard of until I was asked to do this talk. Uh, it's a paper entitled Leading the Entrepreneurial University, and it said, uh, I've, I've missed out one or two bits, but this is the, the core of, of what it was saying. The web has eaten into the local and national monopoly of knowledge that universities have traditionally enjoyed. The web is no respecter of traditional disciplines and is more open to the organization of knowledge on a need-to-know basis. Universities are no longer the independent creators of knowledge, and this means that digital and social networks, rather than an over-focus on transactional mechanisms, is vital. And when I read that, I thought, the web is doing to universities, I'm back to the Bible here, the web is doing to universities exactly what the translation of the Bible from Latin into the vernacular languages of Europe did in the 16th and 17th century. It caused absolute chaos. There were dozens of bizarre, radical, millenarian creeds that popped up all over the place because people began to read the Bible for themselves. They did not accept the authority of the priests. Some of them misread, misinterpreted, mishandled scripture. And the result was all kinds of chaos all over Europe. Uh, which included, as uh, many of you will know, um, uh, intolerance, prejudice, war, the Inquisition, and so on. The breakdown of the old authority of the Bible with all this new radical thinking was very, very profound. But of course, once the, once the genie was out of the bottle, once the translation had been done, once the priests lost control of the argument, there was no putting it back. And uh, it took a very, very long time to establish any kind of new equilibrium. And if you say that that argument holds true for what has happened between the web and universities, the thing that I think is very interesting is at the same time that as that little piece I read from the National Council is undermining the authority of, university, of universities, at the same time we're at a moment in time when universities have never been more celebrated and more central to the success of our societies and the success of our economies, which, if you think about it, is a pretty extraordinary state of affairs. Um, and uh, many of you will be familiar with the extent to which that's true. I went to a talk last week by uh, Dr. Roger Speth, who's the chief executive of Jaguar Land Rover, uh, a luxury car maker, They've, uh, they've trebled their sales in the last five years, becoming one of the most successful car companies in the world. He said, we could not be a world leader without our partnership with universities. Jaguar Land Rover has partnerships with 19 universities uh, in, the, in the UK. Um, and similarly, I know from talking to the head of technology at Rolls-Royce, Rolls-Royce, another big engineering company, they have partnerships with something like 20 universities all across the UK. So, uh, and, and many of you will know that this relationship between business and universities uh, has never, ever been more profound and more, uh, more close. And it's not just in the area of science and technology. It's also true in the field of arts and humanities. Uh, and we know that because the field that I work in, in the creative industries, we know that, that, uh, that the, art, the, the creativity that is fed by the arts is crucial to the economies of the future, to the knowledge economy, to the creative economy, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and uh, in, in China, some of you may know, the last 
five-year plan in China, one of the core mantras of the whole five-year plan was to say, we must move from made in China to designed in China because they understand very well that the real value lies not in manufacturing goods, but in intellectual property, in owning what lies further up the, the, the value chain. Making an iPhone in a factory in Shenzhen means the company making the iPhone gets 5%, 6% the value of the iPhone. Apple retains 60% of the value of the iPhone because they own the intellectual property. So everybody is racing for uh, this area of, of building the assets that are needed for a creative economy. And that's why, obviously, why universities are at the core of what's going on. But it does raise the question of what is the relationship between universities and business and what are we doing to ensure that there is an adequate balance to think about who does what, who owns what, and to what end uh, it's being done. So I, I now get on to talking about what I should be talking about. I chair Creative England, uh, which is a, a, a semi-public, semi-private agency, and our role is to, um, to seek out interesting, talented, creative people and nurture their ideas to the point where they become viable businesses. Uh, if you like, a sort of biological um, analogy would be to say we, we try to identify the cells and then nurture them with the right nutrients and the, in the right temperature and the right light so they become viable organisms. In simple terms, that's what we do. And we invest uh, in order to do that. And um, one of the things that we find inevitably, as I was saying at the beginning, is that, again, to continue the, the biological uh, metaphor, it, if, if we introduce new constituents at the right moment into the mix, in a proper kind of Darwinian sense, you make the gene pool much richer, you get a very different set of unexpected outcomes, uh, and you very often get something which is much more robust and much more viable. So naturally, knowledge exchange has to be at the heart of what we do. And uh, there are four or five key qualities, if you like, that seem to me in the course of the four years that we've been running Creative England consistently play out as the key ingredients in making knowledge exchange work and thinking again about this balance between all the different factors that we have in our society of the traditional forms of learning from university, the new forms of learning and wealth generation that are coming out of business and the creative thinking, the free-flowing creative thinking of the arts. So, and the first of those qualities is humility. Uh, I was very interested to see that Google have advertised a whole series of very senior jobs um, in their, uh, their head office in, in, in Seattle. And one of the qualities they're looking for, they say, is humility. Now, if Google are in favor of humility, I'm not sure if any of us should be uh, equally. But it struck me as quite interesting that they see humility as something that's important. And the reason I say humility is, I mentioned Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, you may know one of his great lines was, the way you succeed is stay hungry and stay foolish. Uh, and by that I understand him to mean don't get complacent and don't think you're smart. Stay hungry and stay foolish. It's a pretty good place to start. And it's very difficult when you're developing a real expertise and you're at the kind of stage where you all are working on PhDs to retain humility in a kind of real sense of being absolutely open to what other people are saying. And 
there was a very interesting research project um, a couple of years ago in Brighton on the south coast here in England um, of looking at 400 or 500 small digital media businesses and which ones were successful and which ones were not. It was a piece of research conducted by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. And what they discovered was, in some companies, the, the techies were on top to be crude about it. In some companies, the artists, the creative people were on top. And in some companies, the business people were focused on the bottom line. They discovered, what a surprise, that the companies in which the people with an arts background, the people with a science and technology background, and the people with a business background had genuine parity of esteem between them, they were growing three times faster than the control group of the rest of the companies. And that's Humility may not be the right word, but it's an openness to other people's thinking and other people's ideas. Um, and another little example of that, our design council here in the UK uh, is doing some very interesting work with the National Health Service. And one of the issues that they were asked to look at was the issue of MRSA, the superbug in hospitals. Uh, and they ran a little project called Design Out MRSA. Uh, they got together a group of product designers, they went off to visit a series of hospitals, and they did what most of the clinicians had not done, and that is they spent three weeks working with the hospital cleaners, uh, just seeing what they did. And the result of that was they designed a whole range of very simple, basic products, bedpans, bedside uh, consoles, the basic, simple bits of kit in a hospital, made out of new materials, different shapes. They actually turned out, many of them, to be cheaper. They were more attractive in their design, and the hospitals in which they were implemented, the incidence of MRSA went down significantly. And there was a great example of, I think, here is a, here is a, a, a cutting-edge challenge to clinicians. How do you deal with it? You go and talk to the hospital cleaners. Uh, and I thought that was a lovely little example of the fact that sometimes humility requires us to do things that we don't necessarily think about. And the second quality, which I think uh, uh, is really important, and it's tied to it, and again, it's terribly obvious, and that is generosity. Uh, another project, also funnily enough, in Brighton, but run by Brighton University, called Fusebox 24, um, was a, a, a program of um, pulling together small creative businesses that the university thought had great potential and workshopping them very intensively over a six-week period. Uh, and one of the things that came out of that, that they wrote in their report, was they realized that one of the reasons why it had been such a success is that none of them had been too precious about their intellectual property. Far from guarding it jealously, they had actually given it away uh, and shared with each other, and the result was far, far richer outcomes. And it rung a bell with me because a lot of the companies that we work with in Creative England, well not a lot, but many companies that I've spoken to that we work with in Creative England, they say one of the problems about doing a research project with a university is the universities are so uptight about IP, they don't share anything. We can't make anything work. If we want to do something really innovative, we don't do it with a university. I thought that was absolutely extraordinary. Uh, and I, but I discovered that that does ring true with many people. So being generous in the way that we uh, treat IP does seem to me something which always pays dividends in the long run. Giving it away is a good way of winding up with more of it. And uh, a project which may be familiar to some of you um, uh, as, a, as a style 
a, a place that we do some work with in Creative England. Uh, it's called the Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre in Sheffield. Uh, it's a, it's a high-end facility owned by Sheffield University. All the kit is owned by the university. But the people who are working there are senior engineers from an extraordinary range of high-tech manufacturing companies. It's Boeing, Rolls-Royce, Airbus, Doughty, and General Dynamics are the, are the, the main partners. They work together. Everything that they're doing uh, is shared IP. When they get a project to a point where it looks as if it's going to be commercially realizable, then the companies are allowed to kind of withdraw and develop it in normal ways. And talking to the people working there, they say, people outside assume that we are all in bitter competition with each other, and we are, but actually having the generosity to share what we're doing is the only way we can make advance at the rate that we need to. So again, that kind of generosity is something which seems to me crucial. And... Um, uh, there was another point of, oh yeah the, a nice little quote um, a, a project which I'll talk about uh, in, in a minute um, based on a group of universities in the southwest of England and I think doing some really interesting work in their latest report they quote John Seeley Brown the American academic I'm sure some of you know who said to deliver innovation in times of rapid change you must collaborate with people who are not like you um, and talking to somebody in Bristol, they had misinterpreted that and they said, John Seely Brown says, if you really want to succeed in rapid innovation, you have to learn how to work with people you don't like. Uh, but I mean, that may also be true. So generosity is a pretty crucial element in making knowledge exchange work. The third element, again, a pretty obvious one, is curiosity. And, and the reason I say that is in a in a business-focused enterprise like Creative England, inevitably, the kind of knowledge exchange projects that people want to be involved with are projects that have a visible and speedy outcome. And sometimes it means that important benefits get missed, if I can put it like that. And uh, again, from that Fusebox project in Brighton, in their report, what, the university working with these little creative businesses, one of the things that they wrote in their final report was sharing experience with sets of peers that are not defined by industry or sector, but simply by a common curiosity about what fusion means, that produced the best results. So although they were very, very project-focused, because these are people, who, men and women, who are trying to get their businesses off the ground, by being able to simply explore issues that made them curious, they actually got to better and more focused results at the end. Um, and a quote from uh, the director of another of our research councils, who I heard recently saying, you can't compartmentalize science into useful and useless because you never know which is which, which I think is a, a, a great line. And again, something, uh, one of my favorite quotes, and I'm sure some of you will be familiar with this, um, I'm sure it's an apocryphal story, but uh, Einstein at a, at a dinner party in Harvard and a, and a uh, some junior academic uh, has been put next to him at dinner and is terribly nervous and doesn't know what to say to the great man and says, uh, you know, Dr. Einstein, you know, uh, uh, could you tell me what your, what your latest research project is about? He said, if I knew what my research project was about, I would not call it research, which I think is a, is a fantastic line. And sometimes, uh, even on projects that we think are very focused, to be able to say to ourselves, we don't know what this is about, but we're curious, is a great place to be. Um, the fourth quality uh, I've called serendipity. Um, if you're not familiar with that word, 
simply means chance, but on the whole, I guess, good chance rather than bad chance. And um, I mentioned that uh, this project in Bristol called REACT, which is part of a, a bigger program that the Arts and Humanities Research Council has been running here in the UK between four groups of universities and creative businesses in their area to look at how we can build better links between universities and creative businesses. Uh, REACT um, is based in Bristol, and they, in, in writing up uh, some of their research projects, they said the three qualities that they really needed to have were diversity, generosity, and speed. I've talked a little bit about diversity and certainly about generosity. But the speed one interested me. Why do they think that speed was important? And their answer was, if you have a, a knowledge exchange project which is completely open-ended, people squirrel away into irrelevant sidetracks. An idea comes up, it's a stupid idea, you spend a lot of energy trying to explain to your colleagues why you think it's a stupid idea. If you've got a very, very limited time frame, you don't have time to do that. You just have to get on with it. And very often what they were finding was that the idea that seemed to be stupid actually turned out not to be stupid at all. And the pressure of time made people focus on the real priorities rather than getting stuck into, uh, into little kind of sidelines. And I just thought that's a that's something which they discovered not as a deliberate ambition, of course, but because they didn't have the money to make these projects run too long. So by compressing them in time, they came to the conclusion that they were actually working better than they would have done otherwise. Um, and then still on this theme of chance, uh, I came across um, uh, a report from Harvard Business School. And again, this is something which I'm sure some of you will be familiar with. It's a, it's a project that's been tried elsewhere. But essentially, they invited companies to solve practical problems of other companies where the skill sets and areas of expertise of the two companies had no match whatsoever. And uh, of course, again, what a surprise, they discovered that the companies whose knowledge base had least relationship with the knowledge base of the company presenting the problem often came up with the most uh, attractive and the most compelling and the most satisfactory solution. And it seemed to me that, again, is something which we shut our minds to these really random ideas of chance, which can be uh, incredibly important. And to, to bring that a little bit closer to home, uh, at Creative England, we set up uh, an investment fund with the National Health Service for video games companies to, um, to look at uh, issues of health management for elderly people and people with early stage dementia to see if we could gamify um, some of the kind of routines that they needed to adopt. And as that's gone on, that's become a much richer, more complex project where the people working for the video games businesses uh, are getting drawn into groups of general practitioners, helping them manage their caseloads, coming up with all kinds of other solutions. And again, because we set that project up, without any real idea quite where it would get to. And the National Health Service, similarly, was not quite sure where it would get to. It's turned out to be much, uh, much deeper and richer than we might have anticipated. And finally, um, another little story which I think illustrates this value of serendipity beautifully uh, uh, comes from, um, from BBC Television, where a few years ago, uh, BBC Two ran a series... Uh, about um, uh, Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital. Uh, and one of the programs uh, was about a 
severe, very serious operation on a small child. One of the people watching it was a, a Ferrari pit stop engineer who, uh, who looked at the way the team in the operating theater were working and thought to himself, uh, there's too much miscommunication going on here. As somebody working in a Formula One pit stop team, he was familiar in working in a situation where a car would come in, they have maybe 30 seconds to do some pretty serious new tires, fill up the fuel, clean windscreen, check this, that and the other, and off the driver went. No verbal communication amongst the team, no time to do that, so everything done by learning routines and by non-verbal communication. Uh, the consequences of getting it wrong is the driver could be killed at the first bend, so it's pretty serious stuff. Anyway, he got his mates together and they went off to Great Ormond Street and said, we think we can teach you a thing or two about how you manage your operations and the transition from the operating theatre to post-operative care. And they worked together on a joint project and something very interesting came out of that. And that's a, it's funny, that's a, a story I've told many times and if I've been able to get my slides work, I have a nice little picture of a guy in Ferrari overall standing next to a guy in, in, in uh, green, sorry, both men I'm afraid, uh, in, in green overalls um, having just come out of an operating theatre. And so many people say to me, I remember that picture because it is so counterintuitive that being open to these real, real cross-sector uh, exchanges of knowledge uh, sometimes produces extraordinary results. And the fifth quality uh, is sociability, which is another way really of describing openness. And I, um, uh, I heard the, the research director at AstraZeneca recently talking about a new facility they're building in Cambridge. Uh, where they are deliberately uh, incorporating public rights of way through the property. Uh, they're having coffee shops and whatever built inside their property because he said they feel it's very important, even if it's symbolic, that they have some kind of day-to-day -day interaction with the public because it is, after all, for the public that they're doing their research and it's for the benefit of the public that they're developing new drugs and having that kind of immediate contact with the people for whom they should be working is a very important part of their keeping their focus. Um, and I mentioned at the beginning the Hemingway Challenge. Uh, the Fusebox, Fusebox project in Brighton, one of, the, one of the great initiatives they had when they launched this project was on day one, people came in just as you did in that earlier session and were asked to explain what their project was. Uh, and they did. Some of them in 10 seconds, some of them in 26 seconds, some of them in probably... 30 minutes if they were lucky uh, and the people running the project said okay write down what your project is in six words as in the Hemingway challenge put it on a piece of cardboard and then you have to spend the rest of the day with that around your neck walking around the streets of Brighton uh, seeing what people say to you and of course they all came back at the end of the day very disheartened because people said people don't have a clue what I'm talking about uh, and they did that they repeated that every two weeks through the process and at the end of the six-week process they had really fined down not just the pitch of how they might explain that to an investor but their own focus on what they were really doing by using the wisdom of the crowd it really moved their projects on and you know interestingly I'm involved in a thing that the Danish government runs called the Creative Business Cup which looks at the most creative business and and one of the one of the companies which is undoubtedly going to go into the finals this year is one of the companies from that project in Brighton and I'm sure one of the reasons is that 
business of having to subject themselves to ordinary people on the street in Brighton and explain what the hell they were doing has made them really think through their project. Uh, at the simplest level, one of them was a guy who, who uh, came up with a business proposition uh, for uh, uh, women at work who, were having, who had babies and small children but did not want to lose touch with the technology of working in a modern office and therefore wanted to be able to do a day's work at a time, whatever. And he called his company something like, you know, mum's work, whatever. Wasn't doing very well at all. When he did his little card, went round the streets, he came back and he changed the name of his company to I Want to Work. And it's a huge success. You know, what a surprise. Uh, and sometimes, you know, those really obvious solutions come from engaging with the crowd. And uh, <coughs> A, a very, very simple example. Um, a man called Patrick McKenna, who runs a, a, a company called Ingenious Media, the most successful media investor in the UK by far. I mean, it's, uh, he was one of the main investors in the film Avatar. Uh, so he's, he's, he knows what he's doing. Very big in, in, in film and music. And I've heard him say on many occasions, what the hell is the point of taking uh, art students in art schools and compelling them to do business modules? What we should really do is teach them the social skills so that they can develop friendships with accountants and lawyers and get all the work done to run their businesses for free. And I thought, you know, it sounds like a kind of crazy proposition, but actually, it's not so silly. These things are about human relationships. And uh, taking that to another area of our work at Creative England, uh, Jeffrey Crossick, who was the Vice Chancellor at London University, was very fond of saying, the problem with running a university today is we're educating students for jobs that don't yet exist. What, are we, what should the education therefore consist of? And of course, one of the things is the ability to learn how to learn, but the other thing is the ability to work in a team, the ability to be sociable, the ability to share, the ability to communicate. And going back to my reference earlier to the Chief Executive of Jaguar Land Rover, um, doing this talk last week, he was asked a question after his talk about the skills problems that Jaguar Land Rover faced. And he said, well, you know, one of the problems that we've got is that when engineers are discussing ideas, they scribble drawings on a piece of paper. He said, I'm finding that there are lots of kids coming out of university now who never learnt how to draw when they were in primary school, and they don't do very good drawings, and it really inhibits communication. And my message to the government would be, if you want to have great engineers in 20 years' time, make sure you're teaching kids in primary school how to draw. Sometimes these simple, these simple skills uh, are crucial, and th that includes the simple skills of sociability. And I'd say that one of the most successful kinds of knowledge exchange that we do at Creative England is every month, pretty much, in a different city around, uh, around England, we have, um, it's called an event, but it, essentially it's a party for freelance people working in digital media and the creative industries, all to come together, have a bottle of beer, exchange business cards, find out what's going on, learn from each other, learn where there's a bit of work. Those, uh, it is, it's so low level, uh, it's almost embarrassing to call it part of what we do as a company, but actually it is one of the most successful elements of it because that kind of simple, basic, peer-to-peer -peer learning, as we all know, that is one of the most effective ways of communicating ideas and enriching your own thinking in an unexpected way. And we don't very often open ourselves to it nearly enough. So, the, the obvious link that connects all those five things is that 
None of them are about the process of innovation. They are about the attitude of innovators. They're absolutely not about process. They are absolutely 100% about people. And for me, that's the, kind of, that's the core of what uh, we need to think about in knowledge exchange. And going back to that little quote I read from the National Council for Guidance in Education, their, their finishing line about the universities being in trouble because of the web or having their traditional monopoly uh, under threat because of the web, digital and social networks rather than transactional mechanisms are absolutely vital. It's such an obvious thing to say, but we do very easily forget that. And um, when we think about knowledge exchange, it's easy to think about the transactional mechanisms, about merging disciplines and different methodologies of knowledge. And it's easy to forget that sometimes it's the attitudes that we have, the attitudes that we bring that are really important. Um, and I'm just going to read this last little bit because I want to make sure I say what I wanted to say. Of course, that's important, but the danger is you can finish up with a cocktail that makes everything taste a bit flat, a bit compromised, rather than each ingredient in the exchange bringing out the distinctiveness and flavor and texture of the other elements. As with any good cocktail, it's about getting the balance right. And I agree with Rick Rylance, who's the chief executive of the Arts and Humanities Research Council, who is fond of saying, if you want to be interdisciplinary, you have to start with disciplines. And I think that there is a, that there is a, a real value in remembering that in sharing, uh, if we bring expertise and confidence, it is easier to be generous in the way we interact with other people. It's not a matter of chucking everything in a blender and homogenizing it and coming up with a kind of lowest common denominator sort of Starbucks smoothie. It's coming up with something which is a distinctive, unique set of ingredients with the right balance. You don't have to own the whole show. You don't have to have a monopoly on knowledge, but it helps if you own your bit with confidence because then you can share it with generosity and with authority. The chemistry that drives successful knowledge exchange is much more about the people than the process. It's recognizing that you cannot disentangle the personal from the professional, or the useful from the useless, or the art from the science, or the science from the technology. And you can't disentangle the environmental consequences or the ethical or social consequences from scientific inquiry. You can't disentangle the cultural from the economic, as the UN said in its report. Or as Coleridge and Davy might have put it, you can't disentangle the lyrical ballad from the chemistry experiment. Well, you can, of course, but it means that you won't have as rich and as flavorsome uh, and as productive an outcome as you might do otherwise. If we're going to ensure that the extraordinary advances that science and technology are making in our understanding of who we are, we have to temper those advances with the values of culture and of common humanity. That's why knowledge exchange has to be rooted in relationships that can encompass mutual respect, curiosity, a sense of purpose, a sense of wonder, but also a sense of fun. And I think that's how you make knowledge exchange work. Uh, and I'd be very happy to take your questions. <laughs>